live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 Minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Rabbi Hirsch, welcome back. We know that people are always searching at this time of year, especially on Tisha B'Av, for meaningful content that they could feel the Chorban. And we, every year, have done a special Tisha B'Av episode that has always been very well received, and this will be part four in our Holocaust series. Yes, this is the last episode pre-Tisha B'Av. But before we proceed, I wanted to thank the sponsor of this and one future podcast. It is being dedicated as a refush lema to Goldie Bus Esther, whom we hope makes a full recovery, Mitashe. The prosecutor. So I would like to talk about one of the most amazing people I have ever spoken to about the past, about history, Ben Ferenc. In many ways, he is the Jewish symbol of the Nuremberg trials. But before we do so, I would like to share three small incidents from the Holocaust. Each of them is simply a, a drop in the ocean of what happened, but they perhaps help to capture some of the tragedy to understand the exile. On August 25th, 1942, the Great Roundup took place in the ghetto of Bochnia. 500 women, children and elderly people were shot at a nearby forest. At that time, Bronya was working at one of the ghetto's many workshops. When she heard about the impending action, she took her children to a bunker in mortal fear that the children would cry and their hiding place would be discovered by the Germans. While in the bunker, they heard terrible cries from next door. Leah Grossman and her children had been discovered. They heard her pleas to be shot first. They could hear the earth-shaking lamentations of a mother witnessing the death of her beloved children. Then the terrible silence followed by the volley of fire that pierced the mother's heart. Leah Grossman was dead one of so many. Early the next morning they crawled out and Bronya covered the eyes of her children so that they should not see the dead covering the city streets. She ran with a small pot of soup to Fifush. As she neared his residence, her pulse quickened. Maybe he too was swallowed up last night, but there he was in his tiny cubicle lying on a straw mattress on the bare floor. Fifush. Fyfush was a young man from Palestine who had come to visit his parents in Poland. When the war broke out, he was stranded. All his efforts to reach a port or a neutral country ended in failure. His parents were now dead, murdered in their own hometown. And Fyfush, after much wandering and running from place to place, had found himself far away from his beloved Tel Aviv, dying from disease and starvation in the ghetto of Bochnia, where he had been befriended by Bronya. When Bronya brought him the soup, his only nourishment that day, he could hardly sit up. Bronya propped him up and fed him. As she did so, 
Firefusher's face became relaxed and the pain in his eyes was replaced by a strange tranquillity, an expression of peace rarely seen in those days in Jewish eyes. You know, Mrs. Kozitsky, when I lie here in this corner of the earth where the sun never shines, I see my sunny Tel Aviv, the blue skies, the blue sea, the golden sands. But in my visions of my beloved Tel Aviv, I never see myself. Instead, I see you walking in the streets of Tel Aviv under its majestic sky with your two children. I sense that it is a vision of the future that you and your children will live through this darkness and reach the promised land. A few days later, when Bronya arrived as usual with her little pot of soup, Fyfusha's mattress was empty. Neighbours told her that he'd been taken away in the most recent action. Bronya never saw him again. In 1946, Bronya and her two small sons went to Eretz Yisrael from Europe. One day, as they were playing in the sand on Tel Aviv's seashore, little Yitzhak asked his mother if she knew anyone in Tel Aviv. She looked up at the beautiful blue skies above the peaceful waves and said, Yes, we have a very dear close friend in Tel Aviv. His name is Fyfush. This was heard from Bronya on April 26th, 1979. The Ghetto of Sons, Elul 5702. We searched the Jewish houses now empty and unoccupied, hearts bursting with sorrow. The expulsion to Belgets had been carried out on Sunday morning, and we were part of the clean-up work dictated by the Germans to sweep out all of Jewish property that remained in the ghetto. Here and there we found a pair of Shabbos candlesticks standing abandoned on a table, even a slice of challah. Our brigade had been working hard all day. Let's take some of this food and eat before the Germans notice, said Schlemmer Goldberg. But just as we put down our tools and began to eat, the persecutors showed up and caught us all. I'm responsible for everything, announced Schlemmer, intent on saving the rest of us from punishment. Without a word, the German officer pushed his victim to lie on the floor and began beating him with a wooden club with insane brutality. The beating went on and on, and Rubschlemer was covered with his own blood, as his life was being taken from him. But he just kept on calling out, let this be an atonement for all my sins. Everywhere I went, in every camp I was in after that, I kept hearing that cry. Matissio Friesel, 1965. And lastly... Among the many torments devised by the SS at the Yanovska road camp was a ceremony at the camp's gate. The SS men formed two lines at the entrance to welcome the inmates upon their return from a day's slave labour. The Germans would shout out, Who is the most respected race on the face of the earth? The inmates, exhausted from their labour, would respond hoarsely, The Third Reich. And who is the most accursed race on earth? Once again, the Jewish voices would rise in unison, the Jewish people. Louder, the German command. And the Jews would respond again and again. The Jews are the most accursed race on the face of the earth. In those days, Rabbi Shrol Shpira, the Bluzhva Rebbe, was imprisoned alongside a distinguished lawyer from Borislav by the name of Horowitz. One day, the lawyer said to the rabbi, Rabbi Spira, how can you join in the diabolic choir and announce publicly that they are the chosen people and we are the accursed race? He didn't wait for the rabbi's response and continued, I had $2,000 sewn up 
into the lapel of my concentration camp jacket so that when an opportunity came to redeem my life, I would have something with which to pay. Last night, I was lucky. For the $2,000, I was able to buy two capsules of cyanide at $1,000 apiece, one for you and one for me. The Rebbe of Bluzhev touched his friend's shoulder with gratitude. I envy you that you are able to do it, but I cannot. My father was a Rebbe, my grandfather was a Rebbe. When my time is up, I will join them in the world of truth, but I will not be able to enter that world as one who has taken a life, even his own life. Thank you, my friend, for your friendship. That day, when the inmates returned to the camp, the SS men were lined up in their usual manner at the entrance. On their well-fed faces were malicious smiles of anticipation. As the prisoners neared the gate, the SS called out, Who is the most respected race on earth? The Jews proclaimed one voice that overpowered all the others. The Jewish people are the most respected race on the face of the earth. The Jews, the Jews, the Jews. The SS men rushed in the direction of the rebellious voice. On the ground lay stretched out the body of Horowitz, the lawyer. On his lifeless face was frozen a smile of victory, and his gaping mouth continued silently to proclaim the eternity and greatness of the Jewish people. Heard from the Blues of Arebo in January 1974. Wow, three powerful stories. Yep. And when you hear the millions of Jews that were killed and so many hundreds of that, we've gone through many heroic tales of sacrifice and what people went through on this podcast. But these personal stories that just zoom in to certain people and the way they face things, they're just... Uh, Yep, it's That's a combination so of the, the greatness, the despair, and the destruction. But let's now move to our main topic, someone who spent years tracking these Nazis, the last prosecutor of Nuremberg. So how do you know about him, and how did you contact him? Well, at the height of COVID, I came across his name, and that he was still alive, managed to track down his son, Donald, and from there to a number of Zoom calls with a 101-year-old who was as sharp as a pin. He was born on March 11th, 1920 in Transylvania, emigrating when he was 10 months old to the Lower East Side in Manhattan. Uh, when I spoke to him, he still remembered that his bar mitzvah parsha was Vayikra and Amzu Yotzarta was his haftarah. He studied crime prevention at the City College of New York and won a scholarship to Harvard. But a scholarship covered only the very basics, so because he had no money, Ben Ferenc found a federal program that offered grants to needy students who would work as legal assistants to the professors. Professor Sheldon Gluck was a leading criminologist, Jewish, who was writing a book on German aggression and atrocities. And he gave Ferenc his first task, to summarize every book in the Harvard Library related to war crimes, making Ferenc very familiar with the subject and ultimately <laughs> changing the course of his life. When America entered the Second World War, he applied to army intelligence, but he was disqualified because he was of foreign birth. The Air Force also turned him down because he was only five foot one inch. Uh, they said he wouldn't reach the pedals. So he joined the U.S. Army 
He underwent basic training in North Carolina, but he was never one to suffer fools gladly. Which I guess didn't go down too well in an army where rules have to be obeyed, whatever you think. That's very true. He, in fact, he put it like this. We were required to spend hour after hour marching around in the hot sun, listening to a stupid master sergeant bellowing again <laughs> and again, column right, column left. I decided to assert my right to liberty and refused to march. I explained to the drill master that close order drill was invented by the Romans in medieval times. Those on the right of a marching unit carried their shields on the right arm. Those on the left carried shields on the left arm. And those in the middle held their shields overhead. Thus, they were protected on all sides against the spears that might be thrown from an enemy on a hill. I pointed out that we were not likely to encounter spears thrown from a hill. A solid block of American foot soldiers approaching the machine guns of an entrenched enemy position would be mown down if we did what he was training us to do. The Sarge listened with obvious contempt and retaliated by declaring war on me. That gives you a flavour of him. In June 1944, he landed in Normandy and participated in several major battles in France, in Belgium. And as they approached Germany, they heard rumours that American soldiers captured in the town of Malmedy had been murdered. And then uh, reports began to pour in about the murder of Allied flyers by civilians on the ground in Germany. And at that point, because of his legal training, his legal background in, in war crimes, Corporal Ferenc, as he was then, was transferred out of the infantry into a team that was tasked with collecting evidence for war crimes. And what he would do, he would go by jeep to the scene of the crime. He would summon the, the mayor, the burgemeister, if there was one, and order that all civilians within 100 yards of the scene be assembled and made to write out an exact report of what had happened. And the form that Ferenc uh, made began with a declaration in German that the witnesses swore to tell the whole truth under penalty of death. Suddenly, these belligerent German civilians became submissive, and very soon he was holding a dozen affidavits, and the guilty parties were arrested. But as they entered into Germany itself, his assignment changed. In April 45, they received a report that a tank battalion had stumbled upon a scene of horror. It was in a small town called Ordruf, which is a subcamp of Buchenwald, which is a, a large area encircled by barbed wire with hundreds of dead bodies. His assignment was to get into the camps as soon as possible and assemble whatever evidence was needed to prove the nature, the extent of the atrocities committed. But nothing, obviously, nothing prepared them for the reality. He became very emotional when he spoke to me about entering the camps, visibly so. And he didn't just enter one camp. He was in Buchenwald, he was in Dachau, he was in Mauthausen at the very beginning. His job was to get the evidence before it was lost. But even when he spoke to me 75 years later, it was fresh in his mind. You know, while we were speaking, he, he had to compose himself before carrying on. He was indelibly traumatized by these experiences. And I want to play to you a short clip of one of the interviews that I had with him. 
an advanced camp of a war called Ordruf. Um, yes. And, yeah. and they were all similar. Dead bodies all around, crematory going, the SS trying to run away, the inmates lying there, dying there, all kinds of diseases, rats, rats and human beings in the piles of garbage which have been collected, and human beings groveling in the garbage looking for a piece of bread. So I saw all that was repeated place by place. How do you prevent from going crazy? I don't know. I went crazy. Wow. But, but did you know the numbers that had occurred in the East through these mass murder squads? Uh, well, I knew it only when I had the reports. The reports totaled it. Totaled a million murders, and where and when, and by whom. So what more do I need? But when you came across those pieces of paper, you and how much did you know about concentration camps before you ever saw one? I didn't know the word concentration camp, and we didn't know the word concentration camp. Do you speak, you speak Yiddish, yes? Yeah. And yeah. did you communicate with any of the survivors there? Uh, well, I, I didn't talk much to the survivors because they were in no condition to talk, you know. I mean, occasionally I'd find one who had been working in the office, uh, and he could speak to me in German. I could understand German from my Yiddish. Now, the Buchenwald concentration camp was an indescribable horror, as we've just heard. In fact, Eisenhower himself went to see the piles of dead bodies. He remarked that American soldiers could now see why they had to leave home to fight in Germany. Obviously, though, most of the SS guards had fled before the American army arrived. So if the Jews were too weak to testify, as he said, and the SS had already fled, what was he doing there? Well, firstly, he would take photos, uh, many of which he eventually donated to the Holocaust Museum in Washington. But his main objective on entering one of these camps was to secure the records in the Schreibstube, the, the camp office. He would look for what was called the Totenbücher, the death registries, recording the names of those who'd perished in the camps. And, you know, with each name, there was a date and a cause of death, although the most accurate English translation of the cause of death would have been murdered. And there was plenty of evidence available to prove that atrocious war crimes had been committed. He came across lampshades made of human skin to please the essence commander's wife, Ilse Koch, who was later tried. That's just a sample. It's uh, one of the facts that have been very heavily disputed, but there's clear the, evidence of the, it. The dispute is about the soap, not about things like this. Now, one of the inmates who worked in the Schreibstube at Buchenwald approached Ben Ferenc soon after he entered the camp, and he said to him, I've been waiting for you. He brought him to a spot near the electrified fence, dug up a small wooden box, which he gave to Ben, and that gift was priceless evidence in identifying perpetrators. It was identity cards of the Nazi guards. I must have taken real ingenuity or courage to find these documents and hide them. Well, this inmate clearly felt that there would be a, a day of reckoning when justice would be done, although it was never completely ever carried out. So Ferenc leaves Buchenwald, he goes to the next camp, and on his way, he met units of the Red Army, the Russian army, in a German house there. 
And one of the Russian soldiers asked him, what did he do in the army? What was his job? And he told him he was a war crimes investigator looking for evidence of what the SS did. So the Russian said to him, but don't you know what they did? So he said, yeah, of course. So he said, so why are you looking for evidence? Just shoot them. And in later years, when it became clear that they would never try more than a very small sampling of all these Nazi criminals, and that almost all the rest would escape punishment, Ferenc often thought of the advice he got from this Russian soldier and actually wondered, you know, maybe he was right. Now, as a Jew, he witnessed these events on a personal level. It was the 1st of May, 1945, and he was at the Flossenburg concentration camp, and he saw now a celebration taking place for the liberated prisoners with large portraits of, of Truman, Churchill, Stalin, and they were in national groups because this was May Day. There were Czech flags, Polish flags, uh, French flags, and then he noticed one particularly emaciated group without any flag. And Ferenc asked who they were. He was told those are the Jews, because Jewish inmates were segregated out, even in the liberated concentration camps. He goes on to Mauthausen in Austria. There, slave laborers were worked to death in a large quarry, and those who could no longer carry the heavy stones were simply thrown over the cliff onto the rocks below. So he drives to Linz, which is nearby. I've actually stayed in Linz when I visited Mauthausen. It's a beautiful city on the Danube. And he found an apartment that was inhabited by a Nazi family, and he just orders them to get out. And he moves in. And the next morning, before going back to Mauthausen, he emptied out all the clothing in the closets, he put them in his jeep, and he gave them to the Jews in Mauthausen. That evening, a woman who had been one of the previous owners comes knocking at the door. She wanted to know if she could take some of her clothing back. So he says, yeah, sure, help yourself. So she walks in and the place is emptied. And she starts screaming, all of my clothing has been stolen. So Ben Ferenc told her that no problem. She can come back with him to Mauthausen and ask the Jews to give her back her clothes. But having carried out investigative work in Mauthausen, in Dachau, in all of these concentration camps, after almost a year, he was now physically and mentally exhausted. What he had seen, what he'd had to do, and now that the war was over, he wanted to go home. So when did he get recruited for the trials? Well, he goes back to New York, and he's actually married, and he's living there, but not for long, because, well, he was married for long, because he actually ended up being married for 73 years, but he doesn't stay in New York for long. He is recruited by General Telford Taylor to participate in the subsequent Nuremberg trials. Although, as he writes, General Taylor uncovered some of my military records that caused him some concern. He noted that my army file indicated that I was occasionally insubordinate, to which I said, that's incorrect, sir. I'm not occasionally insubordinate, I'm usually insubordinate. And I explained that I did not obey orders that I knew were manifestly stupid or illegal. Um, I remarked that I'd been checking up on him too, and therefore I didn't anticipate that he would give any such orders. I oh, wouldn't recommend that at a job interview. <laughs> 
Um, so by March 1946, he was on his way to Nuremberg. Taylor had taken over as the main prosecutor in the American Nuremberg trials. What do you mean by American Nuremberg trials as opposed to... Okay, so most people know about the Nuremberg trials from you know photos of the top Nazis in the dock. But that trial was international. You had Russians, Americans, the Brits, the French. And basically, after that trial, everyone checked out. They more or less went home. Only the USA decided to launch and fund a further 11 trials. One was Nazi doctors. One was government ministers. And in fact, when Ferenc located these Nazi murderers, the Pentagon said, we don't have any money for their trial. But we will see how he got around that in a moment. Uh, let's first describe what his job was. He was the head of the Berlin branch, tasked with finding official German records in the Nazi capital, searching, well, amongst other places, in the bombed out buildings of the Gestapo, the SS, the Foreign Ministry, on Wilhelmstrasse. And one of the most powerful and important discoveries that his staff made was a folder with the secret daily reports of these murders committed on the Eastern Front by the SS extermination squads, the Einsatzgruppen. There were about 3,000 members altogether, and they basically spent every day on the Eastern Front murdering innocent men, women, and children. And this folder had, you know, months of, of documentation. It had signatures of the people in the field, and that would form the basis of the Einsatzgruppen trial. So Ferenc produced a list of Nazi criminals based on these documents' names and decided that the responsibility starts at the top and the primary targets of prosecution would be high-ranking officers. And we will listen to a clip of an interview I had with him on this matter. You obviously confronted these mass murderers face-to-face. Yeah. And... You're coming into contact with people who, by your own calculations, have been responsible for murdering a million of your own nation. What was it like to be with them? That's a tough question to answer because I was ice cold. Um, I didn't want to talk anything to them until I saw them in the courthouse. I captured all of these reports. I added them up on a little adding machine. I came to over a million. I took a sample. I flew from Berlin where I found these things, down to Nuremberg. I presented them to General Telford Taylor, who was in charge of the subsequent proceedings following the International Military Criminal Trial. I said, we've got to put on a new case. He said, we can't. Um, the Pentagon has already approved the existing trials. and. Uh, I doubt if we're going to get in approval for any more trials. And I got quite annoyed and I said, I have here in my hand mass murder on an unprecedented scale. You can't let these guys get free. He said, well, can you do it in addition to your other work? I was doing the research for the 12 trials. I said, sure. He said, okay, you do it. Okay. So I was appointed to chief prosecutor in the biggest murder trial in history, certainly. 
my feeling was I don't want to talk to these guys. I don't want to look at them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. I'm going to take, uh, I had researchers uh, on my staff, I had a staff of about 50 people in Berlin. And uh, I said, I want you to go into their home, search their house from top to bottom. I want you to interrogate them. Give me a comprehensive report on anything what might be relevant in connection with this trial. And they did. I had several... in, in other words, you first met these defendants, these murderers, when you were in the courthouse. That's correct. I deliberately avoided any contact with them because I assumed they would say, oh, I was good to my grandma. I helped somebody here. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I didn't want to talk to them about anything. You reported that you murdered so many Jews in so much time in this time in a top secret report. That's all I need. But right. I said, give me high ranking. I think I had about well, six or eight generals, SS generals. Uh, I had people with doctor degrees. And I had Dr. Dr. Rash. He had two doctor degrees. And I had never heard of such a thing before. I thought they were stuttering. I said, Dr. Dr. Rash, he killed 33,271 Jews on 29.30 September. I think it was Pop, 1941. That's Papi Yar. Yeah, that's Papi Yar. And um, there were... On Yom Kippur also. Yom Kippur, yes. Yeah. There must have been more than 22 people, therefore, that you had, even in terms of um, officers. I had 22 limit, because the International Military Tribunal trial had only 22 defendants, and they had only 22 seats in the courtroom. The absolutely well. ridiculous basis to choose your defendants limited to 22 people because there were 22 seats. Now... As mentioned, General Telford Taylor appointed Ferenc chief prosecutor in the Einsatzen case, Ferenc's first case ever. It was, in fact, the first time he'd ever been in a courtroom, and the Associated Press called it the biggest murder trial in history. It seems insane that the total number of mass killers who were tried depended upon finances and, and furniture, not on how many guilty men there were. Absolutely. Unfortunately, really insane. None of the eventual 13 Nuremberg tribunals had more than 24 defendants. So hundreds, I mean thousands of Nazis got away scot-free, even though they knew who they were. And at the trial, at his trial, each defendant was entitled to be represented by a lawyer of his choice, almost all of whom had been members of the Nazi party and who knew the facts on the ground better than the, the War Department recruits uh, representing the prosecution. And on September 15th, 1947, the Nazi defendants had to enter their pleas of guilty or not guilty. Each and every one in turn said not guilty except for Emil Hausmann, who'd committed suicide as soon as his arrest warrant was served on him. And as mentioned in the clip, Dr. Rausch, who held two degrees, had been the commander of the unit that boasted that it had murdered 33,000 Jews in Babiyar near Kiev. So his lawyer requested that the case be dropped because of illness. And Ferenc asked the lawyer, what was the illness? And the lawyer said it was Parkinson's disease, which caused Rash's body to tremble, to which Ferenc answered, if I had killed as many people as he had, I'd also be shaking. If he's breathing, I'm going to indict the son of a bitch. And he turned up in court. 
Now, the intention of the prosecution was to show that every man in the dock committed those horrendous crimes with full knowledge and intent. What could the defence counsel have possibly be saying to counter it? You have no idea. So, first of all, every conceivable argument was said. They challenged the authenticity of their own official reports. Some denied that atrocities had been committed, or they said, you know, if abuses had occurred, it wasn't while they were in command, they were away. And anyway, killing all those people, they were enemies of the Reich, and it was therefore legal, it was self-defence against Bolshevism. What, they used to say, we killed all those people? Oh, no, no, far too cultured and educated for that. They never used the term murder. That would be crude. Jews were resettled or the Jewish problem was solved. Euphemisms. I mean, it means the same in English. The Jews were murdered. And interestingly, Ferenc made a deliberate decision not to call a single witness to the stand, even though he knew that every survivor of a concentration camp would be more than eager to testify. And they were around in Germany in in the thousands. But witness testimony was fallible and therefore risky. Instead, he relied on these captured official German documents to prove the guilt of of each defendant. I mean, a, a typical Einsatzgruppen report said... In the city of Minsk, about 10,000 Jews were liquidated on 28 and 29 June 1941, mainly old people, women and children. And, you know, from these papers, they knew which unit made the report, who was in command. And they had hundreds of these statements, including the totals for each unit that added up to more than one million executions. And the prosecution under Ferenc submitted its evidence and rested its case in two days. Now, the defence tried to provide alibis or, uh, as we mentioned, justification, and it wasn't uncommon that a defendant swore he was nowhere near the scene of the crime, and yet Ferenc's investigative division found letters bragging about how many Jews he'd eliminated with his signature on. The case was then turned over to the defence, and the end, the judge uh, had a recess of two months to, to weigh the evidence and the, the arguments. And on April 8th, 1948, the court reconvened to render judgment. And it took them two days to read out the 175 printed pages, which, by the way, are available on the Internet. And the judges made the point that every German soldier carried a paybook which included the phrase, the civilian populations should not be injured. You know, they'd heard the argument that the accused were acting in self-defense, but they were astonished by such a proposition, given that it didn't make any distinction between patriotism and murder. Jews were murdered because they were Jews, even if they were absolutely no threat to anyone. And it was the Nazis who started the aggressive war, not the other way around. And the end result was, of the 24 accused men, all were convicted, well, one of them had committed suicide, and 13 of them received death sentences. How did the accused Nazis react well, to their sentences? Well, here are Ben's words on this matter, which are quite shocking. You want there to be no excuse. That's correct. Did they ever express remorse even after they were sentenced? Unfortunately, never. To what extent did the fact that you were Jewish inform your life's work 
in terms of what you did in Nuremberg, what you did afterwards for Wiedergutmachen uh, and for your for peace? That's also a tough question for me because I was always aware that I'm Jewish. Uh, I didn't want the Germans to think that it's Jewish coming from vengeance. And um, for that reason, I gave the interrogation of Ollendorf, my lead defendant, to a very nice English gentleman by the name of James Heath. We spoke with a, uh, a Southern accent, you know, and uh, would you say, sir, that you did so and so? And he was polite as could be. I didn't want them to think, hey, that little Jew boy is getting revenge. You would have thought that this trial would be the end of his contribution to the Holocaust. But actually, in 1948, as he prepared to return to the USA now for the second time, he is recruited for a new assignment, restitution of confiscated property. So... Allied military government law required that property seized by the Nazis should be obviously returned to the rightful owners. And if there were no owners or heirs, the assets could be claimed or should be claimed by a charitable organization to benefit survivors. And a group of prominent Jewish organizations created the Jewish Restitution Successor Organization, the JRSO. And they wanted someone with legal experience to run it to Ben Verenz, and in August 48 he accepts the job, only to find out that the military government required that all claims had to be filed by the end of 1948, so you know, four months away, which was uh, seemed almost impossible. They had to get organised, find staff, and most importantly, identify and claim all the properties that had been taken from them. So Ferenc goes to see the senior military U.S. commander in Germany, General Clay. He argues that a massive search and claim operation needed immediate cash. They had to buy equipment, had to hire staff. And it's not morally justifiable to ask Jewish charities to put up their money when the outcome is still uncertain. Who knows what the German government will decide? So he asked for a one million mark loan, uh, which would be repaid when restitution funds were recovered. And he gets it. And he has a pool of JRSO typists working 24 hours a day round the clock to hammer out the claims that, that poured in from the investigators in the field. And on the final day of the deadline, basically at the deadline, he filled a U.S. Army ambulance with over 160,000 claims and sent it to the official, you know, center. There is a sequel to this because, you know, he has a million marks. It's a considerable amount of money, but it was soon spent. General Clay had been replaced by a lawyer called John McCloy. So Ferenc goes to see the new guy and he says there are still concentration camp survivors in Germany who need desperate help to move out of the, the DP camps, the, the displaced person camps. And McCloy approved a second loan. Uh, the organization now owed three million marks to the, the U.S. Army Fund. And then came a moment of opportunity because... Among the original defendants who were convicted at that first war crimes trial in Nuremberg was the industrialist Alfred Krupp. 
he was sentenced to give up all of his property and be imprisoned for 12 years. In 1958, his sentence is reduced to time served and all of his property is restored by the order of McCloy. So Ferenc turns up to McCloy's office in Bonn and he says that it would be morally wrong if the victims bear the expense of recovering what was stolen from them. It should be at the expense of the wrongdoers themselves. And since McCloy had just given back a convicted war criminal assets worth probably more than three billion marks, it should be from him that the three million are taken and the debts should be cancelled. And McCloy looked up at him and said, Okay, the debt's cancelled. Yeah, makes sense. What about the Jewish items? I don't mean property, but the possessions, which is well known that the Nazis had stolen, the art, the silver. What happened to them? Okay, so art is a whole area in its own right, a podcast, in fact, in its own right, but let's deal with sort of, you know, general, like as you could say, movable property. So during the war, Hitler's minister, Alfred Rosenberg, was responsible for collecting Jewish cultural objects. They collected Sifri Torah, silver, Sidurim. And after the war, a lot of this ended up in a very large warehouse in Wiesbaden that came under the control of the US military government. And therefore, the JRSO was entrusted with responsibility for distributing these things, these, I guess you can call them sacred treasures. Now, sending back Sifre Torah was relatively easy. You know, many of them could be identified. And if there was still a functioning shul in, in a particular area, they were shipped back to that former Kahila. But that was relatively rare. Uh, most Jewish communities in the East had been destroyed or the former owners of the Sifretor had been murdered. So, you know, what do you do now? So they decided that they would send Sifretor to emerging communities, newly established communities, or to Eretz Israel after 1948. But they had to make on-the-spot decisions, not all of which were so smooth. The way Ben Ferenc put it, we maintain strict inventory controls. Every safer terror had to be accounted for. Unfortunately, there were no computerized accounting, and I thought I detected a discrepancy in the number of terrors we shipped to Paris and the numbers distributed. To ascertain the facts would require detailed examination. That could prove to be very embarrassing. So I turned to the learned rabbi in charge of the operation and told him that I had a problem. I suspected that some of the Sifre Torah may have disappeared, and I didn't know whether purloining a Torah was a blessed act or a criminal offence. So I asked him, do I have to look up to heaven or down to the devil to find the culprit? To which the rabbi replied in Yiddish, don't look up or down, take my advice, kick avek, just look away. I learned from that rabbi that sometimes the best thing to do may be to do nothing. And that guiding advice had been has been very valuable to me throughout my life. Now, he was also part of the committee dealing with Wiedergutmachen funds from the German government. It's related to our podcast on the Swiss gold that we did several months ago. Yes, in January. Correct. So 
After about six months of negotiations with the Israeli government and various Jewish groups, a final agreement was reached for the German government to pay out $750 million to the Jews over a decade. And this signing was to take place in Luxembourg on September 10th, 1952. Now, Chancellor Adenauer, who was to sign first, suddenly discovers that his pen has run out of ink. So Ben Ferencz handed him a pen that his wife had given him in 1943. And it was that pen that signed the international deal. And that historic pen is now part of the archives at the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington. But I will end with one last story of Ben Ferencz and his negotiating on behalf of Jewish property and on behalf of the Jewish people in Germany, which I heard from him personally. As part of his remit dealing with unclaimed property, they were all the cemeteries across Germany, which of course had been in, in Jewish ownership and care for centuries and are now abandoned. So they have a meeting with the German government, and the question is, who's going to look after them? Who's going to basically pay for the maintenance? Now, a short while before this meeting, Ben Ferenc had been to Poland specifically to see Auschwitz. And at the field at the back of where the crematoria were, he sees some small bones, likely of a child. He picked them up and put them in his pocket, and he'd carry them around with him. And when he was asked why, he said that having them close by reminded him of what he was doing in Germany in the first place. So at this meeting, the government proposed that they would maintain the cemetery for 20 years as they would uh, German non-Jewish cemeteries. And Ferenc says to them, a Jewish cemetery is permanent, once a cemetery, forever a cemetery. So the Germans say, you know, Mr. Ferenc, be reasonable. Surely you don't expect us to do more for the Jewish cemeteries than we would do for our own. So Ben Ferenc gets very angry. He reached into his pocket. He takes out these bones and he throws them down on the table. And he says, if their descendants were alive, we wouldn't be asking you to take care of the cemeteries. But you killed them. That's why the cemeteries are abandoned. You want the Jews to pay? Go find them and ask them. And the... Uh, Chairman of the meeting sees where things are going and said, fine, we accept your terms. And that's what happened across Germany. Now, I emailed Ben on his 101st birthday and told him that if he had been British, he would have gotten a card or a telegram from the Queen last year. And this was his reply. Dear Aubrey, many thanks for your kind birthday wishes and return greetings to you and your loved ones. If you see her, please tell the Queen that I'm not offended by her failure to send me a card or telegram, even though I slept on the cold, hard ground at Stonehenge back in 1944 as part of the Allied forces getting ready for the Normandy landings to help defend Great Britain from the German onslaught. Warm best wishes, Ben. What a great sense of humour till the uh, end. He was, without <laughs> question, one of a kind. Um, and I even managed to get him to speak for us at the JLE on Tishabov on Zoom exactly two years ago. Unfortunately, he passed away on Cholomoed Pesach this year, aged 103. But because of him, there was some closure to the Holocaust. And at least some Nazi killers were put to death 
although obviously kill the Komois Hashem. Wow. Very, very powerful episode, Robbie Hirsch. Thank you. I mean, obviously, throughout our exile, we've seen so much suffering throughout the centuries, but the Holocaust, which you just gave a beautiful tribute to, is, of course, the most recent and heavily documented. And uh, once again, you've made certainly myself, and I'm sure the listeners feel the extent of the Khurban, which can sometimes be harder to feel in our day-to-day relatively luxurious and comfortable lives. And it's a stark reminder that we need this exile to end. So let's hope this is the last. And please, for the listeners, send out this episode to anyone who you might feel would gain an inspiration or at least be able to feel the day and make it more meaningful. Yes, I've often found that people have sent this podcast to groups that they are part of on Tishabov and people have very much appreciated it from the feedback I've got literally yes, people the coming podcast, up in the streets the main spread of it is always word of mouth so share it with your friends and your family and make sure you follow and subscribe so that you don't miss another episode please send all feedback and any suggestions to podcast.jlead.org.uk and Rabbi Hirsch I guess we're signing off for the term a few weeks yes we're going to take a few week break now and we'll see you after the summer break thank you Thank you.